Hello and welcome back to the Sala podcast. I'm joined today by Sundari Carmody in her studio at Ace Open, which is on Ghana land. And I'd like to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and future. Sundari is a sculpture-based artist working with diverse materials, including concrete, textiles, mist and neon. She also works with video and performance. Her practice concerns itself with the question of how to engage with universal systems and aspects of being which linger in the category of the unknown. Her work explores the subjects of dark matter, sleep and the study of nocturnal creatures. The scope of her investigations take into account the scientific, cultural, physiological and psychological aspects of the dark and give form to things that are invisible and just beyond the limits of our perception. Sundari, your work explores the unknown and the enigmatic, often drawing on our unconscious relationship with the cosmos and the universal forces that influence our experience of the world, such as seasonal changes in daylight, gravitational pull and planetary motion. Your practice is steeped with symbolism and is also highly theoretical. And I would say that maybe it's placed somewhere between science and intuition, what percentage of your practice would you say is spent on researching the subject matter and on the conceptual side of developing the work as opposed to the physical side of making it? Mm. Interesting that you ask about percentages. <laughs> uh, that's a difficult one to answer. I haven't actually thought about how much I spend on each. There's probably a lot of researching just because that's what I'm interested in. Every day I'm listening to podcasts or I've ordered a book online about the history of the Enlightenment and scientific discovery. And then I'm taking notes as I'm reading. As If something sticks out, then I note it down in my, in my book. And then it might feed into an idea eventually. It could be immediately or it could be... A few months down the track so I think it's probably both happening at the same time I'm I'm developing ideas as I'm listening to things or reading things mm. and how do you know in that in that sort of research in those times how do you know when you sort of stumbled upon like the kernel of an idea that you want to work with or how do you know um, when you've struck something that you want to follow that line of inquiry to give one example, I was listening to a BBC Radio 4 podcast called In Our Time and each episode is about something different and I listened to a um, discussion on bird migration maybe three or four years ago and the ideas of bird migration, the, the theories of bird migration, there, there's still a lot that is unexplainable there's there's a lot of people don't know where birds learn to fly to it just seems to happen and I like and I was really drawn to that mysterious force that drives these these birds to travel thousands and thousands of kilometers each year and 
I didn't make anything right away with that, but I, I noted it down and I, I knew I wanted to do something with it. It's this invisibility in, in the idea that I was drawn to. And now, maybe four years later, I'm, I'm working with, with a bird-themed sculpture that draws on those migratory patterns. Mm. And do you think, uh, you know, sort of looking at how your artwork is sort of investigating this unknown and the sensations that we as people but also, you know, the animal kingdom experience and are influenced by but are not easily definable and are often unseeable, um, those things that are maybe just beyond the limits of perception, do you think that you use a lot of intuition when you're creating your work? Quite possibly. I think I think intuition it's it's difficult to measure if I use it a lot or or a little bit, but there's always a scientific way of depicting something where it's measurable and repeatable. But this is a more poetic interpretation of a scientific idea that that I'm more interested in seeing the the poetry or the the mystery of it rather than focusing on what is measurable. Mm. You work with neon in a number of your sculptures and in your work called One, All That We Can See, you refer to a contemporary physicist's hypothesis that dark matter and dark energy make up 95% of the universe and normal visible matter makes up only 5%, coming back to percentages. I love this idea and I think it really encapsulates that theme that you play within your work that you were just referring to. Can you talk a little bit about your neon work, that one and, and the others that you've made and why you chose that as a medium to express some of those ideas? Mm. The material of neon is really interesting for that particular work, I used them because the idea and the material both work together. It is about light and it made sense to use a material that was illuminating. It was light itself. And the circular neon called one, all that we can see, it's, it's a neon bent into a circle and it's a white tube but 95% of it has been blacked out. And so only 5% of it is actually emitting light. And there's all these pie charts online that refer to the idea that everything that we can see in the universe that is visible, that emits light or that blocks light, so planets, dust, stars and galaxies, they're visible to us, but there's a whole other world out there that, that makes up the other 95% that we can't see. So it made this pie chart become an object that was light and blackness as well. And the other, the other neon light that depicts two neon lines, neon tubes rather, that are in the shape of lines on the graph that I found that measure the intensity and duration of light 
on the summer and winter solstice. So they're using a light to depict measurements of light. It just kind of came together in that way when I was thinking about these lines and how to make them a physical object. Mm. There's a thread that runs through your work connecting individual experience with the enormity of the universe and studies of biology and physics um, and the forces that rule our universe. Ideas that are both all-encompassing but also very intimate at the same time, uh, connecting human experience with these giant cosmological questions. You've suggested that maybe through sleep or the unconscious or altered states of the mind, that some of these big questions might be better understood. Can you talk a little bit about this idea and how that relates to your work? I think the planetary movements and astronomical events that include the gravitational pull of the Earth, the alignment of the planets, all these things seem quite big and on an individual level they don't seem to affect us but then we are deeply affected by the events of the universe and of our solar system. The fact that our earth revolves around the sun in a particular pattern with a 24-hour cycle and a 365 and a half or in a quarter day orbit, that that is affecting the way we have evolved as humans. But And it also affects our daily rituals, our sleep-wake rhythms. It's, it, the rhythms of life on this earth are affected by astronomical events. So I was thinking a lot over the years about sleep and and the darkness and things that happen in the dark while at the same time also becoming increasingly interested in astronomy and how how there's new research and old ideas being revived in astronomy that are being proven or disproven and these two these two areas of astronomy and and sleep studies or sleep um the experience of the dark, they seem quite disparate or they seem like they're unrelated, but they're completely related. And it took me some time to really marry those ideas together in a really succinct way. And when I came across the idea of sleep being an astronomical event, it just, it seemed quite simple. Like, I, I don't, it was so obvious. I don't know why it took me so long to, to bring those two together. But it is, it does demonstrate to me just how much we are affected by, by nature and by what's happening on this ball that we're on, the floating in space. I love that idea of sleep as an astronomical event. It really ties that kind of universal with the very personal. Mm, indeed. Have you ever played around with your circadian rhythms, you know, practiced different sleep cycles or tried to emulate different sleeping patterns that animals and, and humans have had over the years? Mm, I think I had a long hangover of my teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> where I, I think well into my 20s I was sleeping really, really late and waking up really late. I've, I've 
worked really hard to adjust my sleep patterns and I've read a lot about how to improve my sleep quality as well as my sleep um, rhythm cycles. It, it's really, really hard for some people. And I've learned that some people, the, the idea of um, night owls and, and morning larks. Larks, think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> In the book I read called Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker, he refers to the, to the night owls and skylarks when he's talking about the studies that they've done on people um, people's sleep cycles and they've put people in bunkers in complete darkness for weeks I think and I'm not sure how legal those studies would be now <laughs> but uh, he refers to these old studies and they discovered that some people have a naturally 23 hour cycle and some people have a naturally 25 hour cycle and that's why we have that division of morning larks and, and night owls and so it, it is hard to switch from being one to the other and I think probably like most people I have a very complicated relationship with sleep I drink too much coffee I, all, I do all these studies and, and then I ignore them all <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think sleep is something that feels like it comes naturally to, to most of us obviously there are sleep disorders and things but trying to mess with those things it sounds so much easier in theory like wake when the sun comes up and mm. Uh, you know, it's not always compatible with our lifestyles either. So No, and um, Thomas Edison was famously afraid of the dark and then he invented the light bulb. I'm pretty sure I have the right person. And, and just how much that light has affected our sleep. Having light at nighttime when we should be producing higher melatonin levels to get ready for sleep and the light's messing with that. Oh, that is a very fun fact. Afraid <laughs> of the dark. Well, that's a good motivation for invention, isn't it? Um, the passage of time and temporality is always present in your work in some form. So, you know, again, referencing those laws of nature from the representation of data that tracks hours of sleep to comparisons between seasonal daylight um, and the collection of thousands of opium poppy seeds from your own garden over several seasons. And it suggests a real um, durational work, that sort of a thread through your practice. Is time a medium for you that you consciously practice or is that part of your work? Time is incredibly important to studies of sleep and to astronomy. And it's something that's really, I think important in not only in my practice but I think it's a reflection on how much it is a factor in the way we live our lives when people we talk about time all the time yeah <laughs> <laughs> excuse me <laughs> but we do we we there's so many poems about time there's lots of stories about time travel or uh, we don't even really know what time is. I've started trying to read more and more about time from a physicist's point of view, and it's very complicated. There's a an astronomer, I think, from the Middle Ages. I'm, his name escapes me, but he famously said that if if no one asks me, I know what time is 
but when I'm when I'm asked to explain it, I know not, or something along those lines. And it is a mysterious force too, in a way. We 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 can stretch it to be quite long or short, and it's it seems malleable, but also something that just is like a current and just flows on without without any control it's it's beyond our control in a way and the whole idea of daylight saving time is it's very interesting that that humans try to sort of control time and i think there's all these political ideas of of time too like the way we set our clocks to be synchronized to the greenwich mean time because that historically that's that's where they set these things up and so there there's it it's a very rich area to explore and i'm sure i will keep exploring it and th- yes it does a f- there's there's an element of time with with the seasons and with the way that the earth's orbit affects the growing of things so like the poppy seeds that i've been collecting I have to wait for them. I can't make them happen. They they have their own time and I have to work on their time each season collecting the seeds after they've sprouted and and grown and bloomed and then losing their petals and then drying out. It's it's kind of similar to the way an astronomer works. They can't make the stars appear. They have to wait for them. We're, we're at the mercy of time. Some of your work references the black swan metaphor and uses swan symbolism either explicitly or implicitly. Can you talk a little bit about what the black swan means um, in the context of your work? Mm, the black swan, such a beautiful creature. Again, with the birds. The work of mine that uses the black swan I think is quite different to everything else in the way it appears. But there, there are a lot of elements of it that uh, follow the same thread. So the, the black swan was a mythical creature to Europeans. It didn't exist. The, all the swans that we can see are white and therefore there are no black swans. And then there was the discovery of the Antipodes and we had black swans in Australia. And it disproved this this idea that was completely false. And so the black swans only live in Australia. There used to be black swans in New Zealand, I believe. But these, these swans were brought back to Europe uh, as novelty pets, I think. But in my work, the way I've depicted the black swan is I've come across a memoir written by a great, great aunt of mine who was a nurse, a World War I nurse. Before the war broke out, she was living in London. She'd moved from rural Western Australia to London and was uh, working as a nurse in the hospitals there. And she joined the monster march of the suffragettes and she and other Western Australian nurses decided to make a banner and and on that banner they 
depicted the black swan. And so they marched holding this black swan in London. And it's kind of this interesting... For, for me, there, I mean, there's obviously a political aspect of, of the story that I could have gone down, that I could have followed and, and worked with more. But I was just drawn to the idea of this, what was a mythical creature, but is actually alive and, and is such a beautiful creature. And then being marched on, on a banner down the streets of London and it, it kind of is like a way of showing a mysterious force or or sharing or or empowering something that that wasn't seen making something visible that was invisible mm. yeah and on that making something visible or uh you know sort of embodying something your work often alludes to a human presence more implicitly, um, like the suggestion of a head impression on a pillow. And some of your works refer um, more overtly to bodies, such as the use of um, masks. And that sort of directly references the corporeal as well as cultural practices. Can you tell me a little bit about um, cultural influences and, and how your formative years growing up in Indonesia helped shape some of your arts practice and some of those works that you've made with the masks? Mm. It's an interesting question. I get asked a lot, what was it like growing up in Indonesia? And it's a difficult question to answer because I need to be able to make a comparison. And that was my only experience, really. I didn't have two (laughs) childhoods that Mm. I could compare. Growing up in Indonesia, I think has had a lot of influence on my work but not in any way that I deliberately make visible. It's such a rich visual culture there, especially in Bali, which is where where I lived, and masks and temples and flower arrangements, paintings. There's just so much to see everywhere and there's a big uh, element of animism so that the island practices hinduism but it's a different kind of hinduism where it's combined with a lot of buddhism and animism as well so the the trees and rivers they are personified and they are revered and they have spirits things things that we can't see but we uh, as the inhabitants of the island have to pay our respects to. And Bali is quite famous for the way that it depicts its culture through carvings and paintings. But I, I've been drawn more to the ideas of things that can't be seen but are acknowledged as, as having a presence. I don't know if, if being drawn to is even the right idea. I've, I've, I don't think I ever made a conscious decision to incorporate that. It kind of just became part of part of how I saw things. Mm. And your work, um, I think you've made a couple of works that sort of hint at, at the volcanoes that were part of that um, experience and how that relates back to your 
seen and unseen, you know, on the surface and hidden beneath the surface sort of themes. Yeah, I made my very first sculpture was a velveteen volcano. It was four metres wide and uh, I think almost two metres high or not quite. And it's called The Build-Up, which alludes to this powerful unseen force deep below the volcano, deep below the earth. So we can see the volcano and the crater, but there's this terror of the unknown when we see a volcano. We don't actually know when it could spew up all of that lava and erupt and change everything around it. And it was definitely a big part of the landscape in in Bali and the rest of Indonesia. And um, I think, yeah, returning again to that idea of things, things that we can see are affected by things that we can't see. And we know that the invisible things are there because of the way they affect the things that we can see. Kind of like consciousness and dark matter and dark energy. We don't know what they are, but we know that they're there because of the way they affect the things that we can observe. Mm, Like gravitational pull. Indeed. And the tides and Mm. everything connected. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the new work that you've got in Ace Open in the exhibition called If the Future is to be Worth Anything? I've got a series of sculptures in the foyer of Ace Open. There's two concrete sculptures which take up the form of architectural models and they're black. And then there's two other suspended works. One is a brass ring and the other is a sheer organza piece of fabric that is hanging from the ceiling all the way to the ground and it has a gold leaf circle embedded in the centre of it. And these works, I was developing them in my mind, I think, for quite some time and I started working with clay while I was away on residency last year in Berlin and I I bought a bag of clay because I knew that I could make a lot of different things and then just put it in a bucket and just smush it all down and reuse it and just kind of sketch out my ideas. So I started playing around with these forms that look like Um, architectural sites that are used in cosmic spaces so like observatories or temples or just um, dark sky spaces where we can observe the night sky with the naked eye and there are temples that I have referred to in the making of this work There's also a site in India called the Janta Manta, which is actually a very scientifically accurate site where they have steps and uh, towers that precisely align with certain times 
of the year. They precisely align with stars that they can observe. And, and it's essentially one big sundial in a way. And I haven't visited this site, but I've seen images of it. And it still it resembles like a temple, but of science. And I was also exploring cathedrals while I was away looking at thermal baths and and the way that these spaces they create a mood or have an atmosphere that is quite different to other spaces they they're kind of they're contemplative and there's there's this sky and then or there's the water and just air there's just you in that space, either looking up or looking in to yourself. And so the site, the the models that I've made from concrete, draw on a lot of these architectural spaces. And one one of them in particular does actually take the essential elements of a water temple in Bali, um, right next to my mother's house where I grew up. It has the steps leading into the water and and it's situated in a valley so the only view is up is a uh, particularly with the works that you're talking about here a very spiritual element there's sort of a you know the contrasting or maybe complementary relationship between science and spirituality and human sort of grappling with that and again, th- these works are sort of have a disembodied, you know, like a suggestion of humans with, the, you know, steps leading down and um, things that are there for humans to interact with. But um, but again, there's that absence so that I suppose the audience um, can contemplate being in that space. Yeah, that's right. I, mean, I think creating a model that is to scale would allow someone to sort of mentally walk through walk through the space and imagine imagine being in there to scale. Mm-hmm. I think we're we're a pretty special creature humans. I think there's a there's a lot of hatred, self-hatred at the moment with with humanity and and rightly so, but I think we also need to appreciate the the specialness of being a being a human. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, my cat gazes up at the sky, but I don't know if it's the same, same kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> we there's a lot of wonder and and yearning for for something beyond that is quite unique to to us. I don't, we we create so many artifacts. There's so many relics of spaces and objects that are reaching to the sky. Hmm. I think that's a really nice place to, to wrap things up with, with us gazing into the abyss, lying back and looking up into the darkness with all the light and stars and, and the unknown around us. So thank you for, for joining me today, Sundari. Thanks, Kate. <laughs>